0: What it's really made me think about recently is the sense of home and what is home and where do we find our place in the world. And you've obviously been exploring that in some depth over the last couple of years. And for me as a mixed race at British Ghanaian, the idea of home is a really complex one for me. And I still don't know the answer to that. And I'm just wondering now, what does home mean to you? Is it where you're just surrounded by your favourite books?
1: (laughs) I think that definitely helps. You know, I've lived in um, quite a few places over the last 10 years. But one thing I know is that I'm Black British, for sure. You know, that doesn't change wherever I go.
0: Hey, and welcome to Shade with me, Lou Menser, holding the space for conversations at the intersection of anti-racism and creativity. And what a month it's been since my last episode with artist Richard Rawlings. Shade has been getting some press attention, which is fab, but that doesn't pay the costs of running a show, right? So if you benefit from this work and you enjoy the chat, please consider contributing to Shade Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Shade Podcast. And thank you to all of those who have signed up this month. And please do share the show with those who might benefit from the archive. And now for today's episode. Sylvia Arthur is the founder of the Library of Africa and the African Diaspora in Accra, Ghana. It's a private library, but with a public mission to focus on the production, preservation and dissemination of knowledge derived from African and diaspora literature. The library elevates black literature across geography and generations and serves as a physical meeting place also where visitors can connect through books on the continent. I first met Sylvia three or four years ago as a guest of a play she had written and performed called Obama and Me. More about that later in the show. Of her library, Sylvia says, Now more than ever, spaces that centre black narratives are necessary, but we'll continue to elevate African literature long after the current news cycle moves on. I love talking with Sylvia so much. We covered her move to her parents' birthplace, Accra, in Ghana, and how she feels about those book lists that have been circulating. Sylvia tells us why her library is so needed right now and she talks about a special occasion when Akala came for an unexpected visit recently. You're going to love this chat. Oh, and please remember to subscribe, share and review the show. You can do it now while you're listening in. Thank you. So here we go. Enjoy. Sylvia, so nice to speak to you. You too. I wanted to introduce you and um, talk about how we first met. And we met at one of your plays called Obama and Me. Can you just tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so I wrote Obama and Me um, just as it was coming to the end of President Obama's eight years in office. And it just happened to be that I realized that his whole term in office, which was from 2009 to 2017, or 2016 rather, it coincided with my time living and working in Brussels. And I realized that some of the experiences that he had had while in office um, I had had similar experiences whilst I was working in Brussels because I was working on the promotion of freedom of movement, which is obviously very controversial. And it was just it was kind of a paradox having me as a black person you know, going all over Europe, I traveled all over the continent, speaking about um, and representing the European Union on freedom of movement. And so the kind of experiences that I had, the racism that I faced, it all kind of overlapped with Obama's experience. And I thought it would be interesting to write something to commemorate both the end of his eight years in power and the end of my time working in Europe. And so that's how the play came
0: about. And it was amazing. So congratulations on such a great piece of work. Um, And you moved to Accra recently. When did you actually go to Accra?
1: I actually moved in June 2017. So it was kind of in the aftermath of the Brexit referendum.
0: And we talk a lot about repatriation. um, And as you returned to Ghana a couple of years ago, and it was just before Ghana's year of the return, I think, And you've talked quite a bit in other interviews about your reasons for going back. But what I'm particularly interested in is how it feels watching um, what has been going on with the Black Lives Matter movement at the moment. From the viewpoint of where you are now, based in Accra, do you imagine that it's a very different experience um, watching what's happening from Accra than it would be from when you were living in London?
1: You know, I've had this experience before because I moved to Brussels in August 2010 and not long after, a few months after, there were the London riots in 2011, which I I think Mm -hmm. it was in February 2011. And I remember watching the riots in London from Brussels and just thinking like, wow, I couldn't believe it because especially where they started in Tottenham, because I lived in Edmonton um, at the time, so not far and so I was seeing you know places that I'm familiar with streets that I'd walked past uh, through and buildings that I'd walked past and I could definitely understand and feel the rage you know and you're not divorced from it just because you move somewhere else and I feel the same thing with living in Ghana and seeing what's happening in the United States and in the u k today you know mm. I may not be there physically but definitely mentally i'm i'm always I'm always there and you know, one thing about living in in Accra and in Ghana and in a black country when you're black is you kind of think, okay, so that's racism and race behind me. And, you know, sometimes I would be walking down the street in Accra and I would see these billboards with like a black model advertising Nivea or advertising a car or something. And I would be disorientated slightly because I would think, wow, there's a black model on that billboard. And then I would realize, no, I'm in a black country. But that... Only lasts for a while. And I remember when I moved here, you know, it was at a time when a plethora of books came out about race. And so you had Rennie Edo Lodge's book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to, to White People About Race. You had uh, British by Athwa Hirsch, Natives by Akala. Um, and there were all these books, and I thought, you know, I'm kind of not reading those books. <laughs> I'm not reading those <laughs> books because That is behind me. And it was actually the assassination of the Brazilian politician Marielle Franco in March 2018 Mm -hmm. that made me realize that I actually cannot turn my back on the problems of my people wherever they are in the world, whether that's in Brazil, whether it's in the UK, whether it's in America. And so while, as I said, I may not be there physically, uh, the only difference probably would be that I might be out on the streets marching myself if I was in the UK um, but I'm definitely still there mentally.
0: Hmm. And part of your work now in Accra is with the amazing library that you've founded. So I wanted to hear a little bit about that and what led to you starting the library. But also with what is going on and with you particularly being based in Ghana at the moment, I just wondered what particular books you may have read that have offered you some kind of um, comfort or refuge um, when you've been reflecting on this particular time in your life.
1: Yeah, I started the library in uh, December 2017. So I moved to Ghana in June 2017. And at the time, it wasn't in my mind that I would start the library that year. Um, I'd been collecting books with a view to having a library since uh, 2011, since living in Brussels. And when I moved to Brussels, I've always been a reader. And so I would buy lots and lots of books because I was lonely and I was in a city that I didn't know and I didn't know many people in. So I turned to books and I started to buy lots of them. And it got to the point where I couldn't store them in my apartment in Brussels and I couldn't store them in my apartment in London either because there were just so many. And so I would ship them um, to my mum's house in Kumasi, which is in um, the south of Ghana, but in, kind of in the center. And every time I would go back and visit her and I would see the books just sitting there, I felt guilty because I knew that there were people here who could you know, make use of those books and they didn't have access to these kind of um, quality of books, let's say. And so I had the idea for the library back in 2011. But like I said, it didn't occur to me in 2017 when I moved here that I would start it immediately or so soon. It's been, it's been interesting because I've met lots of people from all over the world, um, and from Ghana, of course, itself. And, you know, books are really a unifying thing. They really are. In terms of what I've been reading in this moment, I've had people who've come to me and said, do you have Rene, Rene is, um Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race? Mm. And yes, I have it. Um, and also all those other books I mentioned, you know, Natives, British, um, So You Want to Talk About Race, People seem to be turning to those books as a way to help them think and uh, absorb and analyze the current situation that we're in. I personally have not been turning to those kind of books. Um, I've been reading Dead Aid by Dambisa Moyo, which I'd read before a long time ago when it first came out. And I think the reason why I'm reading those books is because I kind of see it as I'm still divorced from race, in a sense, or I want to divorce myself from it. And I'm looking to solutions. And I'm not sure that those books I'd mentioned before um, have many solutions. I don't know because I haven't read them. Um, But, you know, something more practical about being economically and culturally independent Mm -hmm. um, rather than being so dependent on the West in terms of financially and culturally. I think that's the way that I'm going anyway, in terms of my reading.
0: I think that's interesting, and personally, I've had some reservations about the book lists that have currently been circulating um, as recommendations for tools and of, of learning and, and radical change. And I just wonder what you've thought about the recommendations of the, the, these book lists that have been circulating. I mean, and they've been in mainstream press and all over social media. And I think, really, I'm asking this question for those who are tuning in because they've committed to learning to evolving, and hope to take some action. But the discussions over the past month have made me realise that you can read all you want, you can intellectualise all you want, but actually what you do doing to support change long term, and you've just talked about that in terms of economic freedom um, as well. But I just wondered what you thought about these lists. I think maybe you've already answered that they're not particularly the books that you may be recommending personally in your library.
1: I mean, I think it depends on who you're recommending them for. And I'll give you an example. You know, one of my friend's critiques of those books was, um, you know, we live this as as black people or people of color, we live this experience every day of our lives. So reading about it is not necessarily adding um, to our knowledge or our experience. Although another friend said to me that, what it does is that it may articulate your experience in a way that you yourself um, can't articulate. So that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But I think for someone who has lived this experience day in, day out, you really do think like, what am I getting from this or what's the purpose of it? So I don't know if those books are necessarily written for black people or people of color because that's Mm -hmm. our daily experiences. What I would say is, you know, it's one thing to read those books. And I definitely think those reading lists are directed at a certain um, group of people um, to give them an insight into what it's like to, to live as a person of color in the UK or in the United States. And so in that sense, I guess it's kind of good if it is, if you act on it, you know, as you said, you know, there's it's one thing to read these books and to be able to say, you know, oh, I've read this number one bestseller now, the first black woman to be the you know, number one bestseller on the UK uh, nonfiction list after all this mm-hmm. time, Rene Adelodge. Um, but you know what are you doing about it? And I think that's the problem. It's not enough to read. You really do need to kind of go away, think about how you can make a difference and make an improvement to people's lives, your neighbor's lives, the people that you come into contact with every day. And you won't necessarily get that from a book because the book will only do so much for you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And that's been part of my feeling about it. People do feel like, right, I've read the book, so I've done the work kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) And I've definitely noticed that on social media as well. So I'm sure, um, like many of us, you saw a huge influx um, in your following numbers over the last couple of months. And I've also seen that over time, for, for many of us, they've dropped off a bit. Yes. And I'm sort of worried, even though social media is, is a superficial reflection of what's going on in the real world, um, but I was worried loss of interest suggests that the deeper changes that we've been hoping for um, may be more fragile than we thought, that yeah. perhaps that might not be happening. I, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I agree with that completely. I think, obviously, social media is so fickle, and the problem with it whilst it can be a good thing, is that it reduces Black Lives Matter to a trend and a hashtag. Mm. And, you know, for, for some of us, as I said, this is something that is life or death on a lot of occasions. It's something that we mm. live with every day. And so I, I really don't know what the answer is to social media, because, you know, whilst it's helpful for getting the message out, it also becomes kind of like an echo chamber almost. What's that saying where you're singing to the choir or whatever that saying is? you know, Preaching
0: to the choir. Preaching to yeah. the choir. That's
1: it. You're preaching to the choir. And, you know, when those people drop off, as you said, then you're left with the same people who were there before who, by and large, get it. So then where do you go? You know, where do you go yeah. from there? Um, so yeah, it, it, absolutely. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult. But um, I think also with social media, as as we know, it is an outlet for people to say and do things that they wouldn't. Ordinarily, do if they were in your face, if they were face to face with you, and I think that works on a negative and on a positive as well. So there are people who will have you know all the books and all the reading lists, and they'll be posting them on social media because it makes them feel good and it makes them look good. And then the opposite of that is people who you know will just be kind of saying the most racist bile on social media um, because they're anonymous. So it's kind of like this um, flip side of being hyper visible and being anonymous but doing it to get, to get, I don't know, to get your point across, <laughs> if you see what I mean. It's two sides of the same coin.
0: I've never thought of it that way, actually. At least totally the, um, two sides of the same coin, isn't yes. it, being hypervisible but anonymous? Yeah. What it's really made me think about recently is the sense of home and what is home and where do we find our place in the world um, and you've obviously been exploring that um, in some depth over the last couple of years and for me as a mixed race at British Ghanaian the idea of home is a really complex one for me and I still don't know the answer to that and I'm just wondering now what does home mean to you? Is it where you're just surrounded by your favorite books?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think that that definitely helps. You know, I've lived in um, quite a few places over the last 10 years. But one thing I know is that I'm Black British, for sure. You know, that doesn't change wherever I go. I'm a Black British person of Ghanaian descent. More than Mm. that, or to reduce it even further, or to narrow it down even further, I'm a Londoner. I'm a Londoner through and through, and that will never change wherever I live. I'm also, obviously, I live in Ghana. Um, I've been here now for three years, and it's a kind of home for me as well. Um, But I would say, to me, there's no contradiction or no conflict in me being Black British. I accepted that a long time ago. And, you know, I feel if there are others who don't accept that for whatever reason, whether they are, you know, they're British, white British people who don't believe that a Black British person can exist, or whether they're, you know, Ghanians who say, well, you know, you're Ghanaian or you're British or whatever. I know what I am mm. and I define myself and I'm quite comfortable in that knowledge. So home to me is many different places. It's where my books are, but ultimately London is my home.
0: And also it's a sense of community and wherever you have lived and worked, I'm sure it's the people that you engage with directly on a personal level that also affects your sense of home as well. And um, I've just been thinking that I can see on social media that you've had the most amazing visitors to the library and they just seem to get so much from, from being there and from enjoying the books and from talking to you. Um, and I'd just love to hear about some of your favourite moments that you've had since opening. Yeah, it's
1: definitely the people that I've met. I've met people from all over the world, from Trinidad, from Haiti, from the USA, from um, from Europe, from other places in Africa. And if it wasn't for the library, I definitely probably would not have had the opportunity to meet those people. Um, ironically, and I say this, you know, all the time, I've met people from South London that I wouldn't meet in London because of the whole North and <laughs> Northern, South London divide. Um, So that's been good as well. But yeah, it's like the conversations that you meet, you have with people, and you really do come to realize that at base, we are all the same. You know, we have our differences, clearly. And they're not just aesthetic differences, or cultural differences, or racial differences. But at the end of the day, we come together over books, and we come together over ideas, and we share those. And so that's been fantastic. The other thing is that we had an event um, at the end of uh, 2019 in December, and that event marked the closing of the old Libraria space. So we used to be called Libraria Ghana, and we started in a one-room office, and now we're called the Library of Africa and the African Diaspora, and we are in a house, which is uh, fantastic. But when Mm. we closed the old librarian, we had an event um, that was a musical interpretation of Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart. And it was um, a musical group called Listen Africa. And they're a group of um, young um, students, actually, they are in their early 20s. And one of them, a guy called Ni, he did um, this interpretation for his dissertation for university. And it was absolutely amazing. I'm, I'm telling you, it was like a world-class performance. And everybody who came mm. really enjoyed it. And they learned to, um, you know, see Chinua Tebu's magnum opus in a different way, which was through wow. musical performance. And that was absolutely amazing. So, yeah, they're the amazing.
0: highlights. And Akala popped in, I heard. He did. Oh.
1: <laughs> well, he, he, well, do you know what? The story about that is he didn't pop into the library. He popped into my house. <laughs> and that was because um, he was in Ghana performing for Afro Nation or Afro Chella or both. And I'd heard that he wanted to visit the library. And I waited as long as I could <laughs> before packing up the library because, you know, I was waiting for him to come over and I didn't hear anything back from them. And so literally on the last day that I was in the library, we packed up everything, all the shelves in a, a pickup truck, all the books, everything. And then I got a message saying that Carla wants to visit. And so, you know, I said, you know, I've packed up the library, but everything is at my house. So if he wants to come and look at some books, you know, he's welcome to come to my house. And he did. So that was interesting.
0: (laughs) That's so cool yeah. it's becoming like a mecca now, your place it's like the first place when I go to Ghana I want to go is to your library
1: definitely <laughs> you should you should definitely come and everybody should come you know the thing is it's a, you know it's a library where we focus on writers of African descent so that 's african african American uh, Caribbean black British, and black European, um, but that doesn 't mean that we exclude Others, we're welcome and open to everybody who is interested in learning about this literature. And let's face it, it's a literature that's been uh, underrepresented uh, for a long time. Um, yeah, absolutely. So it's not that um, you know we're just we're just about you know black visitors or people of colour visitors to the library. No, not at all. Everybody is welcome. Yeah, and everybody is is treated the same. For sure,
0: mm, and it enriches everybody's reading experiences. Right? It's like nobody who's really into literature or stories or hearing about other people's experiences just want to hear it from one group. You know, so sure. that their world will be opened up, and 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 their reading experiences will be enriched. Um, each episode, I asked the previous guest to pose a question to my next guest. So the question for you has come from my last guest, who was um Richard Rawlings, who's a Trini artist who's now based in the UK. Mm-hmm. um, And he doesn't know who, who you are. So he's posing it to the an, an anonymous guest who he doesn't know. Mm-hmm. But what he's really interested in is the moment that we're going through that we've just spoken about. And He was saying, do you think that this is the same moment of 1968 that we saw every disenfranchised group in the world decide to collectively get what's theirs and say enough is enough? Is it that point where we as people are forced to finally take stock of who we are and what we want for ourselves and for our children? And is it that final moment where we actually learn something? And I think as we, he's talking about as a collective group, you know, as the the greater society... You know,
1: I would hope so. I really would, but I'm not optimistic, I have to say, with countries opening up slowly once again, um, and elections in you know many different countries around the corner, not only in the United States, in Ghana here as well. we have elections this year. I would hope that things change or at least that we have deep and meaningful conversations based on considered thought we've now had three months or four months of being inside and you know i definitely feel like we needed this pause the way that everything has kind of coalesced at the same time with the murder of george floyd coronavirus um you know whatever else has been going on if things don't change now i don't know when we'll ever get the opportunity to make this kind of significant and substantial change that we need. Mm, I don't don't know. Um, But you know, let's see. Let's see what happens. And, um, you know, I I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with social media and with trends. Let's hope that this is not a trend.
0: Mm. And if you know, our pessimism kind of wins in this situation, which we hope it doesn't. But if we find that things don't change as much as we have of hoped i've definitely personally learned so much from this um experience um, and i've learned how to engage with people who are new to this conversation um and i've i've just learned the challenges of trying to bring people into the conversation um or into activism who perhaps haven't been part of it previously um and 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 also how to find my voice and how to to make um to be really critical of who I choose to engage with, because there's been such an influx of people asking for interviews as there have been for you, you know, from the media and all sorts. And usually I would have jumped at those opportunities. But after a few weeks, I just thought, I actually can see that you're asking because this is a topical event, not because there's any interest in you asking beyond beyond that. Yeah. And so it's made me definitely more aware of who I decide to engage with, because do you know what? We've only got so much energy.
1: I think that's a really good point, actually because I remember not too long ago, a mutual friend of ours was on um, BBC Radio 4. <laughs> yeah. And one of the questions was, um, like, has, have you noticed anything changing in this moment? And it was in relation to um, George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, and bringing up black children in the UK. And I thought to myself, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that George Floyd had been murdered, would there be a panel of four black women sitting on Radio for discussing anything. You know, it's like the only time that we're invited to speak is when it's on race, quote-unquote, issues. And we'll know that a change has come, especially in representation in the media and access to opportunity, When, you know, there's two black people speaking about Brexit and it's not about race or anything, you know, or there's two black people speaking about um, some, you know, the weather or the royal family, not to do with Meghan Markle necessarily, you know, (laughs) just anything that other people are allowed to talk about freely, just because they are who they are. When we're given those same opportunities, then I think we'll know that a change has come at least in terms of the media.
0: Mm. Well, that's a really good, poignant place to end. So many of my conversations have um, recently have ended that way. You know, this is what we hope to see. And when this happens, then we know that change is actually coming. Um, But for those who do want to expand their mind and enjoy their reading more and and learn more about what you do, um, how can they get involved in the work that you're doing or how can they check out your work?
1: Yeah, um, thanks. I would say uh, definitely check out our Instagram page, which is at Loatad, that's L-O-A-T-A-D underscore org, O-R-G. Check us out on Facebook. You can search for the Library of Africa and the African Diaspora. Um, And also, if you want to support us uh, financially, you can check out our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash Loatad, L-O-A-T-A-D.
0: Awesome. Thank you. And what I'll do is I'll link all of those um, into the episode show notes so it's easy for people to find as well. Thank you so much, Sylvia. It's been an absolute joy. And I'm so glad that our connection just remained intact. Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, that was the big worry uh, for sure. Um, And I would like to say also, you know, congratulations on the work you're doing. Um, I think it's very necessary and important and keep up the good work and continue.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much, Sylvia, and we'll be in touch soon, I know for sure.